Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor at Northwood right here in North Charleston, South Carolina. And I am so thankful that you are taking the time today to listen to this message. And I do hope and pray that what you are about to hear encourages you, blesses you, helps you to understand the Word of God better, and most importantly, reminds you of how much the God of all creation loves you. I think today's message is going to be a blessing to you. So thank you for listening. And if you're in the North Charleston area, we would love to have you on our campus any Sunday morning at either 9.30 or 11 o'clock. If you're not in the North Charleston area, you can always find us on the web, northwoodbaptist.com. You can visit our YouTube page. You can visit our Facebook page. You can live stream us every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11. We would love for you to be our guest, either on campus or online. So you're welcome to join us anytime you'd like. We'd love to have you. I do hope that today's message is a blessing and encouragement to you. And I hope that today's message helps you connect faith to life. invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to Luke's gospel. We are in Luke chapter 22 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 34 together. So we've got a, a large passage to look at, but in just a moment, we're going to focus our attention to verses 14 through 23. So go ahead and find that in your copy of the Bible, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay, because in the seat before you down the book rack, you will find a copy of the Bible. Pick that Bible up and turn to Luke chapter 22 with us. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you and read it and learn about the God that loves you and desires a relationship with you. Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. We're gonna read together in just a moment. If you're new uh, to the Bible, Luke's gospel is really easy to find. If you can find the New Testament, you can find Luke's gospel. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the gospel of John. And we're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. And we're at a very significant a part of the story in Luke's gospel. We are in Holy Week. More specifically, uh, we're looking at this morning that Thursday of Holy Week, we are, we are now hours before the death of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us now, you know we've been journeying through Luke's gospel for well over a year, and we have made it to the most pivotal moments in human history. So I'm looking forward to diving into this passage with you this morning. Uh, so if, if you're like me, uh, you, you probably watch a little YouTube every now and then, and I don't know if you know this or not, but YouTube, like, it's really a great thing. Like, you can learn anything on YouTube, and, and, and also at the same time, Luke, YouTube is a pretty bad thing because you can, you can waste countless hours on YouTube watching stuff, can't you? Like, I, I got on this thing, and I don't know how it got into my algorithm. I don't know how that stuff works. I, I probably thought something, and it popped up. I, I, I don't know, but, but, but on my algorithm, I noticed some videos of this young man, and what he would do is he would give a brief history about a convicted murderer, and their sentence to, I mean, it's really great, right? And their sentence to death, and what that convicted murderer chose as his last meal. And then, and then, and then he'll take and he'll find all that stuff and he'll eat the last meal that that convicted murderer ate before he was killed. And then he'll rate, like he's got a rating system for, I mean, I know it's terrible, like, but it's so engaging. And so, so I've been watching these videos of this dude eating last meals of convicted murderers and it's been so 
interesting, right? And so, so, so I, I got curious about what the history was of Last Mills. I didn't know this, but, but apparently Last Mills, like as far as we can tell, like they started to, to surface in the Roman Empire. You remember gladiators? Gladiators would go into the Colosseum and, and fight to the death. And, and so, so best I can tell, that's kind of when Last Mills started because, because gladiators would want one last meal before they potentially died and just a reminder of, 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 of life before potential death. And so, so any Right, I, I was reading along or watching these videos on YouTube and, and reading along in some other places, just kind of learning about last meals. And, and so there was a guy, I can't remember his name, but in Texas back in 2011, uh, he had, uh, was a convicted murderer on his way to a death sentence. And, and this was his request for a last meal. Two chicken fried steaks with gravy, one triple meat bacon cheeseburger, one cheese omelet beef, one bowl of fried okra, one pound of barbecue with bread, three fajitas, one pizza hut meat lover's pizza, three root beers, one pint of bluebell ice cream, my kind of guy, and one, well, not really my kind of guy because he doesn't bad things, but you know what I'm saying. And, and one slab of peanut butter fudge. That was his last meal. I don't know if he consumed all that. If he consumed all that, he deserved to die, right? I mean, that's a lot of food. And so, so anyway, so, so, so that was back in 2011. So I forget the guy's name, but this guy is so important in history because after his last meal, the state of Texas quit giving people last meals. Like that was the last, last meal. So now, I mean, don't go to Texas and get convicted of murder because if you do, all you're getting for a last meal is just a regular prison food, right? Like, I know, it's kind of disappointing. But, but anyway, so, so I tell you that because here we are and, and we are at the last meal. The last meal that Jesus would eat before his execution, and this last meal that, that, that Jesus eats before his execution, it is the most significant last meal in human history. Because it's not really a last meal. I mean, it, we could probably better call this the first meal. Because what Jesus is going to do at this table is he's going to take a meal before his death uh, that, 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 that Jewish people, had eaten year after year after year after year in observance of a feast called Passover. And he's gonna take this meal and forever change the meaning of it. And, and, and in changing the meaning of this meal, he is going to teach us that in him, now watch this, everything is new. Now here we are in a new year and I know what all of us want. We all want something new. Because of the work of Christ, what we're promised is every day in him is new. New mercies every single morning, right? New, I mean, every day with Christ is new. And so this, this meal that we're gonna share together in observance of what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago, it is a reminder of newness of life that comes in a relationship with Jesus. And I wanna just show you from the text this morning just two truths that we need to remember every time we share this meal together. So take your Bibles and look with me, if you will, at um, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. Go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's word together. Luke Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, this is what the Bible says. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Father, thank you for this morning and now for the opportunity uh, to, to worship you through the study of your word together. So I pray in these moments we have right now as we're under the authority of your word together, that we will be a people that listen carefully to what you're saying to us. And, and Father, we need the reminders from your word this morning that in Christ, there really is new life, good life, abundant life, eternal life. And so I, I know that as we spend this time together, your spirit is going to speak to us. And so we want to listen well. We want to listen in such a way that it compels us to obey you, to walk by faith, to trust you, to rejoice in the new life that you've given us. And so Father, this time that we have together right now is yours. Spirit of God, move among your people as you desire for your glory, for your namesake, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, I don't know if you remember or not, but a couple weeks ago, we were in Luke chapter one. And in Luke chapter one, Jesus finishes his last public teaching. And now we're in Luke chapter 22. And, and here we are. Like we really are hours before the death of Jesus. And, and if you think about it, uh, that these hours that are going to lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus... Uh, they look quite chaotic in some ways. Uh, what Luke tells us in the opening verses of this chapter is, is now here we are at the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this is a significant time, obviously, on the Jewish calendar. In fact, uh, there, there was a Jewish historian by the name of uh, Josephus, and, and he said that, that during this Passover feast that took place every year in Jerusalem, it was one of three festivals uh, that, that, that if you were a good Jewish person, you would travel to Jerusalem for every single year. And so every single year, according to Josephus anyway, 2.5 million Jewish people descended on Jerusalem for this time of Passover celebration. That's a lot of people in a pretty small place. And on top of that, you think about what took place during the Passover. Every family that gathered, they, they would eat a lamb, remembering what had happened in Exodus chapter 12. And, and Josephus goes on to say that, that during the Passover every year, something like 255,000 lambs lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem for the Passover meals that were shared all across the city. Like this is a significant time every single year in Jerusalem. And on this particular year, during this particular Passover, this is very significant because the chief priest, the Bible tells us in the first few verses of Luke chapter 22, the chief priests want Jesus dead. You come down and look what it says. They were looking to put Jesus to death, verse two, because they were afraid of the people. They were seeing it as Jesus had taught in the temple day after day, how he had the ear of the people. And the chief priests are obviously afraid that, that the people are going to turn to Jesus and turn away from them. And so they want him dead and they find someone to do the dirty work for them. And if you think about it, like this, this is a plot twist. We're, we're not really expecting this, that one of Jesus's own, Judas, betray him. Now, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about Judas. You go back over to John chapter six and the gospel where John tells us in John chapter six that, that Judas did not believe. He was close. He was among the 12, 
but he didn't believe. And so his unbelief, his hardened heart was fertile ground for the enemy Satan to do his work. Way back when, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Luke the gospel writer tells us after the temptation of Jesus that Satan departed for a time. But now the time is opportune and Satan is back. And what the Bible says in Luke 22 verse three is that then Satan entered Judas. And he went away, Judas did, and discussed with the chief priest and temple police how he could hand Jesus over to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him silver. And so in exchange for a few pieces of silver, a plan is in place for Judas to take the chief priest and the police to Jesus, to Jesus in a place where he wouldn't be surrounded by the crowds, a place where he would be in a desolate place with his other followers. And there, Jesus would be arrested. It's gonna get chaotic, but you come down to verse seven through 13, just real quick. Uh, you, you have this just real quick interlude, this story of Jesus uh, telling uh, Peter and John to go and, and find a place for the, the, the last supper to take place, this Passover meal. And, and he, he tells them that they're gonna find a man carrying a water jug. Uh, and, and when you find that man, ask him to show you a room and he's gonna take you to a room. And, and so I, I think the reason why Luke gives us this interlude is just, to show us that while it seems like everything going on around Jesus is out of control, Jesus is in complete control. So much so that supernaturally he is leading Peter and John to the place where the Passover meal would be celebrated. And then you come and you look at verse 12. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I tell you, verse 16, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, gave thanks, and he said, take this and share it among you. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You see it? There around the table, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I have fervently desired to share this meal with you before I suffer. And he goes on to say, I'm not gonna eat of this meal again until we are around the banqueting table in eternity. When the work of redemption is fully complete, we will sit around the table together in eternity and we will share together at the banqueting table. If we're honest, this meal that Jesus shares with his disciples was, was kind of odd. It would have been odd for the disciples because it was a meal. Now watch this. They had, they had observed and, and celebrated and shared every year of their lives. They couldn't remember a time they did not share this meal. Every single year, this is what they did. But they did it with their families. Because with their families, what would happen every single year is, is daddy, the father of the family, he would stand up. And this meal, what it was, it was a time to teach to teach the same truths over and over and over again every single year. And, and daddy would stand up and he would um, lead the, the family through a conversation about why this night was significant. In fact, it was programmed into the children on that night to ask very specific questions. And the first question that a son would ask as they observed that meal together around the table, a son would pipe up and he would say, this, was, this happened every single year. Dad, why is this night different from all other nights? 
And then dad would begin to explain as the elements of the meal were laid out on the table, he would begin to explain the Exodus, the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament. The dad would explain it to them. How, how, how the, 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 the plagues had come through Egypt and how a Pharaoh was out to destroy Moses and the Israelites. But there was this final plague, the plague of uh, the, the, the death of the firstborn sons and how in those Hebrew homes, they took the blood of a lamb and, and put it over the doorposts of the homes. And, and then in Exodus chapter 12, they ate a meal together quickly and made their way out. And they saw God deliver them from the Egyptians and take them across the Red Sea on dry ground into the wilderness. He set God set the captive free and every year, every single year, families would gather around the table in Jerusalem and they would remember what took place back in the Exodus. And so the disciples are there and their dads aren't there. In fact, they've left their own families to follow Jesus. And so the whole setup is kind of different. Like, you know, normally they would be at home with their, or at another place in Jerusalem celebrating this meal with their own families, but they're not, they're with Jesus. The elements on the table look somewhat similar. On the table were, were, were typical elements you would find in a Passover meal, green vegetables that reminded them of life that God had given, but not only green vegetable, bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs that were on the table were a reminder of, of the bitterness of the slavery uh, that the Hebrews faced in Egypt. There was a mixture on the table of nuts and fruit and honey that was mixed together uh, that was to remind the people of, of, of the hard work that the people suffered in Egypt. That, that mixture was supposed to remind them of the mortar of bricks because that's what they did while they were in Egypt as slaves. They, they made bricks. And so every element on the table was a reminder of something. There, there were four cups on the table, four cups of wine. And those four cups of wine uh, were to remind them of four promises. I've got them on the screen, four promises that, that, that were based on Exodus 6, 6 and 7. And so every year when they celebrated the Passover meal, dad would reside over the meal and he would take them through four courses. And at the end of each course, they would drink from one of these cups. And the first cup would remind, the, remind them at the table Table, how God brought them out of affliction, how God delivered them from slavery, how God redeemed Israel and how God desired to make Israel his own people. Every year, it was the same thing over and over and over again. And every year there was matzah bread. There was matzah bread that was on the table. It was that unleavened bread. And, and they ate that bread. To remember way back in the Exodus, how the Hebrew people, when they shared that very first Passover meal, way back in Exodus chapter 12, that matzah bread, that unleavened bread that didn't have time to rise, right? Like we gotta eat this thing in a haste. It's like a fast food meal. Uh, we gotta eat this thing and get out of here. You follow? Like every single year they did this. And now it's different. Like, again, they did this every year, but now they're not with their families. They're around a table with Jesus and, and Jesus stands and Jesus is teaching as he walks them through this meal. And then it happens. Now you weren't there, I weren't there. And I don't know, I mean, over the course of your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had this Lord's Supper a number of times, but in, in that day, on that particular evening, I'm just telling you, when Jesus was there and he was walking through the Passover meal with his disciples. They weren't expecting this. You come down and look at what it says. Verse 19, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They weren't expecting that. 
Now, now, every year, what dad would do when dad led the meal, he would take that bread and he would hold up and he would say this every single year. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And this statement was based off a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse three, where, where, where the bread is called the bread of affliction, a reminder of the suffering of the Hebrews while they were slaves in Egypt. And and you see what happens, don't you? On this night, at this table, Jesus takes that matzah bread and he holds it up and he says, this is my body. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I I bet you that Peter looked at John and said, what did he say? And and, and I I bet you, you know, Andrew looked at Nathaniel. He went off script. Like, that's not what you're supposed to say. Like, my dad never said that. And I haven't said that as a dad. Like, that's not the line. He missed the line. But he didn't miss the line. Because what Jesus was doing that night is he was taking those common elements of that meal. That meal they celebrated every single year. And what Jesus was doing was forever changing the meaning of Passover. Why? Because there is a greater Passover in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he has led us out of slavery. He has led us to freedom. He has led us, right? He has led us into the promised land in a relationship with him. He's forever changing the meaning of Passover. And he holds up the bread. This is my body. You know it, but the disciples didn't quite get it. Jesus had told them this would happen, but they didn't quite understand what Jesus would endure after this meal. You've read the rest of the story. You know that Jesus, after this meal, would be arrested and that Jesus would be taken to the home of Caiaphas and then to Pontius Pilate. And he would be beaten and scourged and then ultimately put on a cross to die. They didn't quite understand everything that would happen, even though Jesus told them that he was going to die. They didn't quite understand everything that was going to happen, but you and I do because we've read the rest of the story and the story has changed our lives. We understand that when Jesus held up this bread and said, this is my body, we understand that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the one who is fully God and fully man, we understand that Jesus is the bread of affliction. He is the one who suffered on our behalf. He is the one who took the penalty for our sin. He is the one who willingly, sacrificially died in our place so all of our sins can be forgiven and we can be given the gift of life. We understand that that Jesus is the bread of affliction. But then he takes a cup. I mean, he's already gone off script, right? Like the disciples are confused. They don't get it all quite yet. They're gonna get it someday, but not in this moment, I don't think. And you come down and look at what it says. In the same way, it was so significant. He also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He took the cup, held it up. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Now, now, again, at the table on that night of Passover, there were four cups. Don't know which cup it was. Some speculate that maybe Jesus picked up, picked up that third cup that represented the cup of redemption. His blood 
redeems us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You follow? And and think about it. This is so interesting, right? Because these disciples, they were familiar with covenant. They understood a covenant that God made with his people where? Well, there were several covenants of the Old Testament and we had time this morning. We could walk through all those covenants and the significance of those covenants. Uh, but, but, But there was a covenant made at Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? A covenant where God said, you be my treasure possession, my people. If you walk faithfully in this covenant, if you obey my law, they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey the law of God. And they, they did what, church? They, they brought sacrifices over and over again to the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And later on, when Solomon builds the temple, they bring sacrifices to the temple and over and over and over again, blood is shed week in and week out, day after day, blood is shed and blood that could never really atone for the sins of the people. In fact, so much so, do you remember now? Come on, put the, put the dots together in your mind. A couple weeks ago, when we were in Luke chapter 21, Jesus prophesied about what? The destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple because that, that, that temple that stood in Jerusalem, it was a very vivid reminder of what? The old covenant. Bring your sacrifices, bring your animals, slaughter them on an altar and through the shedding of the blood, you can be atoned. But that sacrificial system, it never really atoned for sins. It just pointed to one who would ultimately atone for all sins. You see what I'm saying? And so when Jesus says, this cup is the blood of my new covenant, that temple that he prophesies about being destroyed in 70 AD, it would. Like that old covenant, it is gone. It it, It does not offer anyone any kind of atoning grace. But the blood of Jesus Christ, it does. Like that once and for all sacrifice of Christ crucified on the cross in our place, dying the death that we deserve for our sin. That sacrifice, it covers it all, my friend. Every one of your sins, past, present, and future, you never have to bring an animal to an altar to slay it in hopes that God might have favor on you because you brought an animal. No, the shed blood of Christ did it all. Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered once and for all. He is the one that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to be the seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And so when Jesus takes the bread and the cup, what is he saying? It's all about me. It's all about his work. Jesus has come, new covenant, to make everything new. And that, my friend, that, my friend, come on now, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's what you are. You're new. You're not the same anymore. You're not who you once were because you've been redeemed, saved from your sins, set free from the bondage of sin, looking toward eternity with Christ. That's who you are. You've been changed. Years ago, I walked across a stage in May of 2011. I walked across a stage and and I was given a degree, a PhD. That I worked hard for. In the PhD program, at least the way it was back then, is, is when you started uh, working on your PhD, you had seven years to complete it. I took almost all those seven years to complete it. I'm slow. I mean, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. It took me a lot of work to get that thing done. But after almost seven years, I finished that thing. 
And I don't know if you've ever been to a, a PhD graduation ceremony, but it's a lot of pomp and circumstance. My wife was there. We had not been married, but maybe a little over a year and, or maybe two years, I don't know, because Luke was already born. He was a little bitty baby at that point. My parents were there. Uh, my, my in-laws were there. Like church members were there. I mean, it was a big deal, right? Like I walked across that stage and they put a hood on you and they put a funny looking hat on you. And they, I can remember for the very first time, like someone calling me Dr. Tommy Metter as I walked across that stage. And, and then I walked across the stage and I sat down and I opened up the, the, the thing that covers up your diploma and I saw my name, right? And I saw Doctor of Philosophy and the date which I graduated and the, the seal of the seminary stamped on that, that degree. And like, I sat down and to be honest with you, like, it was kind of disappointing. <laughs> like, like I had put forth all this work and all this effort. And when I sat in, like, I didn't feel any different. Like nothing happened. You follow? Like my church didn't even give me a raise. Like, like nothing happened. you like, and, and like, I remember like the next few days after that, like, like nothing really happened. Like nothing changed. Like I had a piece of paper, but I was still me. You see what I'm saying? Like it was like this big letdown. All that work and like, you can go see it in my office. Like all I've got for seven years of hard labor is a piece of paper. Like that's it. You see what I'm saying? And you've been there too. Cause you thought something, you thought something in this life would make you new. When I finally get married, when I finally have those children, when I finally have grandchildren, when I finally get that promotion, when I finally earn that degree, when I finally make it to a six-figure income or a seven-figure income or a three-figure income, whatever it is, right? Like when I finally get there, when I finally get there, I'll be new, I'll be different. And maybe you've gotten there. You got married, you had kids, you got the promotion, you got whatever. And all those things are good. And I know you enjoy those things and all those things are wonderful gifts of God but they didn't change you. They didn't make you a new you. You follow? Because there's only one who makes you new. Jesus Christ. I mean, the last time I read scripture, I was assured that new life is only found, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, new life is only found in Christ. Through his death and resurrection, as you believe by faith, he makes you into a new creation. Nothing else in this world makes you into a new creation. Everything in this world that you're hoping will make you into a new creation, that you're hoping will make you feel new, man, it's going to let you down. New life is only found in a relationship with Jesus. And this meal is a reminder when we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is a reminder that in Christ, we really are new. And so, so here's the question, right? Here's the truth. I want you to remember this morning that Jesus has made you new. And so here's the question. As you think about this text and how Jesus is pointing us to new life through his death and resurrection, in what ways are you settling for the old life? I think at this table, when we come together, this is a wonderful opportunity to ask yourself some questions. One, do you believe, do you believe that inside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're made new? And, and so watch this. If you believe that there's new life in Christ, why do you still settle for the old? Because come on now, we, we all fall into that trap. We all fall into that trap of just constantly believing the lies of this world. 
That new life, good life, victorious life is found in what kind of car I drive or how big my house is or how much I've saved my 401k or the number of children I have or don't have or what my hobbies are or how good my marriage is. And that's where the new life is found. And you keep settling for those things. You settle for the lies of the enemy uh, that, 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 New life is found in your pride and what you can accomplish and what you can make happen or new life is found in giving in to that, that temptation or that desire that you want so bad. And my friend, this morning, it's just asking yourself a question. Are you believing those lies? In what ways are you still settling for the old life? And this morning, repenting of that, coming face to face with the Christ who loves you and realizing once again at this table that he offers you something far better than what this world offers you, that he offers you real new life, trusting in him, living on his mission, making his name known throughout this world, joy that's beyond comprehension. Like that's what's in the new life. And, and, and so this morning for some of us in this room, it's, it's just choosing yet again to run to that new life that Christ offers, rejecting the lies of this world and faithfully pursuing this new life that, that comes in a relationship with Jesus. And so what ways are you selling for the old life and in what ways do you need to put on the new? Come on now, like, you know it. You know there are some things that Christ wants you to pursue in this new life that you're just refusing to pursue. You know that Christ wants you to pursue life in his spirit because as a follower of Jesus Christ, new covenant, God has placed his spirit within you. You're new. And because God's spirit is within you, you can walk by faith. You can walk in obedience. You can walk in a love relationship with the God of all creation. And so for you this morning, maybe you've neglected to put on the fruit of the spirit, right? Or that, that attitude of, of rejoicing and gratitude for what God has done for you. Maybe you need to put that on. Or maybe it's just obedience. You know there's a, an area where God is calling you to walk by faith and trust him where you're refusing to. And so it's just a real simple question. And, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I wish I could help you think more specifically through it, but for you, where you are this morning in your seat, what you need to think through as, as we gather around the table, in what ways are you settling for the old? And in what ways is God calling you right now to pursue the new? Because the table is a reminder that in Christ, there really is new life, right? Now I want you to remember from this text that Jesus has made you new. But not only, now watch this, we gotta go fast. Not only has Jesus made you new, Jesus has made us new. This is so interesting. And it's, oh, it's so Baptist. Look at what happens. It's so wild. So, so you come down and you look what takes place in these final verses here in this section. Jesus says, but look, verse 21, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the son of man will go away as it has been, been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see what Jesus says? There's one of you. There's one of you sitting at this table with me who's going to betray me. And look what it says. This, is, <laughs> this happens, right? So they just have this wonderful, worshipful experience. I know they don't understand it all, but, but they're, they're at the table with Jesus. And Jesus is transforming the elements of a meal they've shared together. He is saying, every time you eat this bread, think of me. Every time you drink this cup, think of me. He's forever changing the meaning of Passover. Like this is significant. 
I mean, what an awesome experience. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be there with Jesus in these moments? And so this wonderful experience of worship and wonder and awe at who Jesus is and what he was doing, it is immediately followed by a fight. That's really Baptist, isn't it? Like, you ever been to a good church fight? Well, here's one. One of you is gonna betray me. Verse 24, then the dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Now, I wasn't there, and, and maybe when we get to heaven someday, God's gonna play this scene back on the DVR. Luke doesn't give us all the details, maybe because it was embarrassing, but, but I, I don't know. So I don't know if it went this way or not, but maybe it went this way, I can imagine. They all start fighting about who's the greatest. And I, and I don't know, maybe Peter, he said to the group, hey, it's me. Remember, remember like that time when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And, and I said, I said, you are the Christ, the son of God. And, and, and you remember, hey, remember guys that he changed my name then to Peter. Y'all used to know me as Simon, but because of that statement, he calls me Peter Rock. He even said on this rock, I will build my church. So I must be the greatest. And I don't know if it happened this way, but I imagine John might have looked over and said, yeah, but he also said, get behind me, Satan to you. So you ain't as great as you think you are, Peter, right? And, and then maybe James and John like, Remember, he called us sons of thunder. Like, that's an awesome name. None of you are called sons of thunder, but yeah, he also rebuked you after he called you that. So, I mean, you know, so they're all fighting over who is the greatest. And then you come down, look what it says in the text. Verse 26, it is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is the greatest among you should become like the youngest. And whoever leads like the one serving for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving. Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see what he's saying? Now, we don't have time this morning to get into all the details of this text. We gotta move forward just a bit, but just hang with me for a moment. You see what he's saying? Like you're fighting about who the greatest is, but the greatest in my kingdom is the one who serves. And the one who's been serving this meal, Jesus says, has been me. Like, so, so who is the greatest? Well, Jesus is the greatest. Y'all fighting about who's the greatest, but let me tell you what's gonna happen. Look, look, come down and look at what it says in verse 31. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You're gonna be tempted. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, this is like, Peter's what? He's great, right? Lord, he told them, him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus, there's no way. There's no way I'm gonna give into that temptation. Satan is not gonna sift me. I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Y'all think you're great. But Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. And you know the rest of the story. Not only will Peter deny Jesus three times with the exception of John, the beloved apostle who was there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, every one of the disciples in that moment when Jesus is taken away by the chief priest, everyone is gonna flee. Look how great they are. Look how great they are. They're fighting about who's the greatest. But when push comes to shove, when temptation comes, they're all going to flee. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, there's one left, Christ himself, standing for Peter, standing 
for Matthew, standing for Thomas, like he's dying in the place of these sinful men who cannot stay faithful to the end. You follow? Here's what I want you to see. All these men had the same need that you and I have. They all needed a savior who'd willingly go to a cross and die for them. And I think about in this room, now come on, this is where I want you to wake up and listen. I think about in this room, we can jockey for position all day long. You can look across this room and say, well, he's better than she is and she's better than he is and she's better than she is and I make more money than that person. I got more education than that person. I've been at this longer than he has. And we can, we can get out our resumes and we can compare and we can rank each other. Like who's most significant and well, he owns this and she owns that and he's the president of this and she's the vice president of that or she owns that, whatever. But at the end of the day, like we are all, my friend, we are all, every single one of us on the same equal ground at the foot of the cross because every single one of us are in need of a great savior because every single one of us, regardless of your status in society, every single one of us have sinned and rebelled against a holy God. Every single one of us deserve hell, eternal hell for our rebellion against God. But Jesus on the cross, he stands in our place because he is the great king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great savior who dies the death we deserve and rises again for us. And when we begin to realize that, that the, really the one who is great is not us, but him. That realization, now watch me, come in real close. That realization that Christ is above all and for all, we realize how great he is, what that does, it makes us, us into a new people because we unify around this. Now, all of a sudden, we realize that at the foot of the cross, we all had the same need, a need for a savior. My friend, we're all now what? Unified in that pursuit, Right? Like we're in this together. Like we know together, collectively, oh my friend, we need Jesus together. And that needing Jesus together, it compels us to be together, to grow in Christ, to spur one another on in the faith, to help each other pursue Christ well, because we all know we need the same thing. No matter what you've done, who you've been, whatever, we all know we all need the same Christ. And so watch this. The table reminds us that God has made you new, but the table also reminds us that God has made us new. We're a new people together, unified around a common purpose of knowing the greatness of our Savior. And so, so just a few questions as we end our time and move to the Lord's Supper. One is, who are you engaging? Now, I ask that question because you think about it in the way the world works. The world tells you to engage people that will get you ahead in life. Engage that, uh, that professor that's gonna help you get to that next level in your education. Engage that boss who's gonna help you to climb the corporate ladder. Engage this, this coach who's gonna help you be a better athlete. And listen, all those things are good. Certainly excel in your careers and all those things. But at the end of the day, who we need to be engaging is each other, right? Because in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, we're doing something. We're pushing each other towards Christ's likeness. And so being more concerned about the body of Christ and coming together and helping each other grow in Christ, being more concerned with that than you are, right? About who can I impress and who can I help get to help me get to the next level? Being more concerned with the body of Christ is far more eternally valuable than you trying to climb the ladder at work. Do you follow me? And so listen, I just wanted to invite you to once again, re-engage. If you haven't in a while, re-engage the body of Christ because we're all on the same team. We're all on the same page and we're all shooting for the same thing, to know Christ together. So it's time for some of us to check back in. 
to get back into the body, to get back into a life connection group or a discipleship group or whatever for the sake of having others around you to help you in the pursuit of who's the greatest, Christ Jesus. Or, and think about this, who are you engaging? Who are you edifying? That's a word we read a lot in the New Testament, edifying. That word edify means to teach. Every one of you are teaching somebody something. If you're a parent, you're teaching your kids. Your grandparent, you're teaching grandchildren, right? In your relationships, you're probably teaching some people. Maybe your friends at school, you're, you're teaching somebody something. And I wonder what you're teaching. I wonder what you're telling people is most worth pursuing. You gotta make the team. Come on, work harder, right? If we get you through, through this program, maybe you'll make the varsity, right? You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And I wonder if we're teaching people to pursue greatness in the eyes of others more than we're teaching people to pursue humility at the foot of the cross. You see what I'm saying? Like, what are you teaching your kids is most important in life? What are you teaching your grandkids is most important in life? What are you teaching your friends is most important in life? And so who are you engaging? Who are you edifying? And finally, who are you encouraging? We all want it. Like none of us go to bed at night and lay our heads on our pillows and think, man, I was encouraged way too much today. Like you don't do that. Like we all long for encouragement, but the best encouragement is not, right? Man, you're such a great athlete. That's good, great. Or man, you're such a valuable employee. Well, that's fine too. The greatest encouragement I receive is when people say something like this to me. Here's what I see God doing in your life. The greatest encouragement I can give my children is, man, I see you growing in Christ in this way. You see what I'm saying? Like what we need to encourage is the pursuit of Christ's likeness. And this table reminds us of that. This table that points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus is a reminder of the grace of God that, that, that shows us that Christ is our King. He is the great one who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now in Christ, we're new. You're new, we're new. And this invitation to live in that new life as a faith family. That's why it's so important that we share this meal together because it's a reminder of, of what it means to be the body of Christ pursuing the great one, Jesus Christ himself. And so listen, we're gonna pray. And after we pray, we're gonna come around this table and share this meal together. But before we share this meal together, I need to ask you, are you part of the family? Have you consumed Jesus Christ for yourself? Do you have forgiveness of sins? Do you have new life? This morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day to do so, to believe that Jesus Christ lived the life that you could not live in every single way. He obeyed where you could not obey. He lived out God's requirements where you could not live out God's requirements. And then he went to a cross and he died in your place. He suffered the punishment that you deserve because of your sins. And he rose again three days later so you could have the gift of life, abundant and eternal as you right now make a decision to repent, to turn from your sins and turn to him by faith. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, believed in the work of Christ and what he's done for you, today is the day for you to do so. Come. I'll be down front. We'd love to talk to you about that and how you can begin a relationship with Jesus. In the corners of this room are two crosses. Go to one of those crosses. There'll be someone there to help you begin a relationship with Jesus today. Maybe you're in this room and you're like me, you're a follower of Jesus. 
The questions, though, you need to ask yourself is one, what needs to go? What patterns of the old life am I still settling for? And this morning, as we just had this time together, it's time to repent and come back to the table and say, God, help me to continually pursue not old life, that's gone. I want it to be gone. Help me to pursue new life. Whatever that looks like for you this morning, you respond to him. Father, thank you for time together in your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit at work in us now. If there's one in this room who's never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus, I pray that person will come this morning trusting you as Lord. For those of us who are your followers, help us to be a people who continually pursue new life and ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Rise your feet as we have a time of invitation together. I'm gonna ask our deacons to come and prepare the table for Lord's Supper.